Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting you'll find anywhere on either side of the breach. Rats are everywhere in Malifaux, as are children. The streets swarm with them. They'll steal your food when you're not looking, or gang up to take down enemies many times their size. But both rats and children can be tamed if you know the right tune to play. Today's story introduces one of Malifaux's most feared and reviled villains. If you listen carefully, you can hear his flute calling even now. I hope you enjoy this evening's story, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Xavier's Exterminators. If you're having trouble with cockroaches, rats, flies or maggots, we're the men to call. We start by cleaning up any rusting meat you might have lying around. Then we cleanse the entire area with a lethal spray made from 100% Bayou Moonshine. Finally, we light the place on fire to make sure the vermin are well and truly dead. Tyrant's Game by Jonathan Boynton and Matthew Farrer They called the building the Observatory. In the glory days of pre-human Malifaux, it had been exactly that. Later, it had been an empty derelict, then a lookout for the settlers from the New Breach, then a shelter for the fetid breeding of resurrectionist plots, then a battlefield. Now it was a ruin home to wreckage and vermin, and something that moved in the shape of a man. Hamlin the Plagued, would-be tyrant of Malifaux and all the worlds beyond, picked his way along the top of the wall. His foot in its rat-leather boot sank into each step with a soft squelch, as though it were not muscle wrapped around bone, but something softer, more yielding, his hands held up a long wooden flute on which he played a strange, slow piece, all minor keys and odd trills. His face was serene beneath the brim of his rat-catcher's hat. Well, not his. And strictly speaking, it had never even belonged to a rat-catcher. It was a copy of a memory of the thing that a rat-catcher had once owned. The ridiculous little scrap of an entity that the tyrant had poured himself into, for want of a better vessel. It was a shape that the tyrant, to his own surprise, had grown used to. And each time he had to reconstruct a body, it was the body of the little man. With a few refinements befitting its new occupant, of course. The posture was rather better, the teeth were all there, the wardrobe more striking. But it was a form the man's friends would still have recognised in the street, 
a thought that amused and offended the tyrant by turns. Well, there would be better vessels soon. Once he had the etheric lock in his hands once again, he could wind the magical fabric tight, tear it loose, and burst free to drink in the tides of power he could feel surging around him. The whole world would be his vessel. He would wear entire dimensions of existence the way he wore this sack of flesh, and rule their peoples the way he ruled the vermin that filled the animated carcass. That power was the prize. The end of the tyrant's game. And Hamlin was here to make the opening moves of the new round. As he moved over the rubble, his music similarly picked its way over a layer of scuttles, scratches, and squeaks. Hamlin's vermin army followed him and sang back to him. Every time a stone or joist slid under his foot, a flood of tiny bodies bore it up again, so that the tyrant could not take a misstep. Hamlin walked in a spiral, orbiting into the open pit in the middle of the collapsed ruin. He could hear his rats squealing with excitement, pushing something along with their snouts. Around the embouchure of the flute, his mouth twitched in a smile, but he did not hurry. Finally, Hamlin knelt at the edge of the pit, clumsily, as though his legs had no joints, but were simply bending where their owner more or less remembered knees to be. Something gleamed at the bottom of the pit. Hamlin smiled again and began a new tune, sliding up and down octaves in a strange cadence, bringing the silver box floating upwards on a tide of insects and worms. Grinning, Hamlin grabbed the device. Such a small thing, such an old thing, such vast implications. An investment of power and time that no one but a tyrant could understand. All that was needed was... Hamlin's fingers scrabbled at the box, clumsy first from inattention and then from rage. One side had been bashed in by a falling stone, so deformed that it would not open. The tyrant snarled, and all around rats snarled with him. Carrion beetles flexed their mandibles. Maggots and millipedes convulsed. He finally tore back the lid, promising himself the mechanisms would not be broken. He was Hamlin the tyrant. They would not dare be broken. They were broken. Hamlin screamed with fury, and all through the city dogs whimpered and cowered. Horses shrieked and reared, cats hissed, rats snarled and clawed and bit. They were broken. Hamlin shook the box, rattling the smashed wheels and spindles. He had re-entered this world while his rival tyrants were still crippled and out of the game. Some dormant, some too befuddled and forgetful to play, one <laughs> enslaved to a child of all things. The device would have made his advantage unassailable, made him the tyrant of tyrants. Junk. Useless. Hamlin raised the box in one hand, ready to smash it back down into the pit before he checked himself. It was an indignity. But a tyrant shrugged away indignity. The device was a made thing after all. He knew that better than anyone. What was made could be remade. None of the other tyrants owned so much as a broken device, 
the advantage was still his. Hamlin picked his way back out to the observatory wall, sat down on it and began to play again, a sing-song refrain, like a child's skipping rhyme. It didn't take long for the lanky little form to emerge from the gloom. The boy was scrawny and ill-dressed, but he walked quickly and purposefully to where Hamlin sat, tilting his head as though there was something at the limit of his hearing. He picked up the device from between Hamlin's feet without ever looking at the tyrant directly, turned on his heel, and walked away into the city. Hamlin's music never wavered. His will didn't relax its commands until well after the boy had vanished from sight. Toshiko Kita stepped through the door of the safe house, silently holding out the badge she had been given. The guard, an emaciated man in clothes much too big for him, grunted and handed it back. Mr. Noguchi is inside, he said. Voice shredded and guttural. She nodded and made to move past him, and he slid a foot out from his chair to block her. You may be Mr. Lynch's guest, but you interfere. You won't be leaving this building. No need for threats. Toshiko replied, keeping her voice light. We all serve the lady, after all. He stared at her with glazed eyes filled with swirls of purple and blue. She swallowed, thankful for the carved metal mask that hid her face. The unnatural gaze clung to her, then dismissed her. Go, he said. The place was a warren, but Toshiko had memorized the plans that had accompanied her instructions, and easily found the laboratory two levels below the street. The lab was a maze itself. Books and machine parts piled all over the floor. A handful of dead constructs filled one corner, limbs spread, armor plating discarded on the floor around them, reminding her grotesquely of birds prepared for cooking. Who's there? came a man's voice. Jiro Noguchi appeared around a stack of books and plans. Toshiko bowed, holding it a moment, then straightened. But the man just scowled at her. Toshiko bristled at the insult, biting her tongue. Misaki has sent me another babysitter? Typical. The lady has sent me to safeguard your work. Yes, I'm sure you'll be most successful at it. Especially since there hasn't been a hint of trouble around this safe house since... Well... Since my last project began, in fact. Masaki begrudged me security back when I actually needed it. Now things are quiet, she sends me a guard? Or is this why she didn't bother sending me a very good one? He gestured to Toshiko's left hand. She clenched it, self-conscious of her missing finger. Don't interfere with my work, Torakaji. Go away. I'll send for you if you're needed. Toshiko clamped down hard on her temper. The man was an insufferable lout, but her duty was clear. She would not fail. Not again. Three weeks at the safe house was enough to sorely test Toshiko's resolve on that score. She had rapidly run out of patience with Noguchi's tempers and rudeness. 
which he only put aside to make vague but offensively vain boasts about his latest masterwork. The gaijin that Jacob Lynch had sent as servants and guards were little help. They took her orders, but seemed trapped in a shuffling, dreamy daze, staring with those strange, brilliantly marbled eyes. Every few days, one of them, usually the slowest and most wasted, would disappear and be replaced. Toshiko didn't speculate about what happened to them. Noguchi had been right about one thing, though. The house was quiet. Guard duty deep in the quarantine zone, to all intents and purposes single-handed, should have been a death warrant. But there hadn't been so much as a whisper of trouble. After the second week, Toshiko had taken to patrolling the nearest streets, heart in her mouth, keeping a clear line of sight back to the safe house's door at all times. But all she had seen was dead and empty ruins. The only exception had been two days ago, when she had seen the grubby toy bear lying in a doorway and crept up to look for who had put it there. The answer had been just inside the door. A small girl, dirty face streaked with tears. She didn't even flinch when Toshiko drew her sword. He took them away, the girl said in a voice cracking with distress. He took them. He takes everything. Toshiko had looked around her in case this were ambush bait, but the street was clear. When she looked back, an older boy was holding the girl's hand and hurrying her away into the empty building, and in a moment they were gone. When she had come back around on her next patrol two hours later, the bear was gone too. Patrol, meditation, kata, and exercise filled many hours, but to fill a few more she had begun quietly borrowing books from the lab. Most were filled with arcane symbols or languages, incomprehensible at best, and uncomfortable to look upon at worst. The most interesting one she had had to sneak out of the lab when Noguchi was asleep. It was a codex book full of wheels, like the gears she'd seen in the gutted constructs downstairs, written on translucent paper so that multiple diagrams could be stacked and read together. The pages were covered in pinned notes and scrawled corrections in Noguchi's dreadful calligraphy. He was clearly excited about what the diagrams showed, but from what she could tell his notes required them to be assembled in ways that were physically impossible. Many of the annotations were angrily scrawled out and replaced with others, some of them without even being completed. She supposed that explained some of the man's bad manners. He was racing to keep up with ideas that were tumbling through his brain faster than he could apply them to his machines, or even write them down. Duty, she reminded herself. The lady was the one who saw the value in Noguchi's work and gave him a house and a laboratory and, well, Toshiko. That was all she needed to know. A movement caught her eye, and she looked up to see a large brindled rat staring at her from the window ledge. It remained motionless as her hand stole up to the harness at her shoulder, and then ducked and tried to run as she suddenly half stood and twisted. Much too late, her arm snapped out, and after a split-second whistle of metal through the air, the rat was on its side, convulsing in agony. Toshiko ended its misery with a quick cut of her tanto, and then worked her shuriken free of its ribcage. Her face was expressionless, and she tossed the corpse into a midden pail. 
Malifaux had rats. It was a fact of life. You just learned to deal with them. Out in the dark, something chuckled with a voice that had used to belong to a rat catcher. In the dream, Toshika was running toward the safe house. Sometimes the leg she was running on seemed to be her own, and sometimes she was lower, chin almost at the cobbles, with four bare feet flurrying beneath her. She heard a flute playing and children's voices, laughing and crying. He takes everything. He was watching. Toshiko didn't know who, how or why, but the thought had the instant certainty of dream knowledge. He was watching. She scurried between the ankles of Lynch's guards, who in this dream were no more than skeletons wrapped in richly coloured flames. She ran through doors as a human, flew down stairwells as a fly, skittered along corridors on rat feet toward... wheels. Turning wheels. Turning gears. Toshiko snapped awake, straight into nerve-twanging alertness. The house was silent. The lightless night of the quarantine zone pressed in against the windows. But Toshiko had sworn that even after she'd woken she could hear... Turning gears. Slipping on her weapon harness and fixing her snarling mask over her face, Toshiko moved. As Toshiko crept toward the lab door, she could hear Noguchi's voice rising and falling in the blaze of lamplight. Nothing unusual about that. The man could conduct animated conversations with himself for hours, but he didn't seem to be doing that now. The rhythms were different. Of course I did it. I am good at what I do. How else do you think I've wrung such resources out of that sour bitch Misaki? Toshiko didn't so much as frown, but somewhere in the back of her mind, the disrespect to the lady was recorded and filed for later. Yes, yes, all right. I owe you a debt too, Noguchi went on. Of course I am grateful for you guaranteeing no interference about my work. That's been a blessing. Even if I've had to keep Lynch's dregs and that clueless nine-fingered Torakaji oaf around for show, Masaki still thinks she's in control. Toshiko's knuckles whitened around her sword hilt. But that's why I need to keep it here. Where else can we develop it in such security? All my machines are here. We're provisioned and guarded. I... No. No, I acknowledge that it is your possession, sir. But I think it's still... Yes, of course, the wheels are complete. Key? I don't know what. Noguchi's was still the only voice she could hear. Toshiko had sharp ears, and she could not hear any other voice in the lab at all. Just that faint metallic sound. She looked through the doorway. Noguchi was talking to a rat. It sat on a little ziggurat of books, utterly fearless, looking levelly at the man. Its paws were laced in front of it, and its head tilted from side to side as though it were considering what it was hearing. Now it was Noguchi's turn to seem like he was listening. He raised a hand, started to speak, stopped as though he'd been interrupted, 
nodded in acquiescence. He was deferring to it like a superior. She thought back to Noguchi's words about what he wanted the lady to believe, and saw no reason to hesitate. Toshiko stepped into the room and skewered the rat with a lunge of her sword. It writhed as she lifted the blade in a gaijin fence's salute. Then she shook the dying creature to the floor and stamped its skull flat. Noguchi gaped at her. What did you? Why did you do that? Why? I didn't want to get blood on the books. I know how valuable some of these are. Noguchi spluttered. Not the cut, you brainless Katanaga grub. What possessed you to defy? He stopped and swallowed the words. Toshiko's sword was sitting against the side of his neck, just waiting for a throat-opening flick of her wrist. Spare your breath. I should have suspected your treachery to the lady when I heard how disrespectfully you spoke of her. But I overlooked it, because my orders were that protecting your work was paramount. My work? Yes, so, Noguchi gulped. So you must allow me to go on. Toshiko shook her head. I heard you haggling with whoever you think your master is now, she told him. You were pretending your work was incomplete. Your master was not so convinced, apparently. All that's missing is a key. Am I incorrect? You don't understand. I understand enough. Your work is paramount, and your work is complete. Toshiko turned her head, scanning for the source of that metallic sound. Ah, here we are. She flitted to his work table and plucked up the little silver box. She could feel a faint, fine vibration from it. Time to be on our way to report your success. You don't know whose displeasure you're courting so recklessly, Noguchi sneered. Lob off all the rest of your fingers if you like. It won't be enough to placate him. And at that moment, the music began. It filled the house. A cheerful song with a catchy, tripping rhythm, impossibly clear for a sound that must surely be coming in and down from the street. It chilled Toshiko's blood to realize she was nodding in time. Then she heard thumping footsteps above her as Lynch's guards moved to the entrances. That much noise meant they were all up. Toshiko knew what that meant. She had personally rewritten all the response drills. Full emergency. What is going on? she whispered. Then the music changed, and she fell to her knees, gasping for breath. A tear from her eye leaked onto the floor, staining red as it burst. Above them came sudden screams of wounded men and women, and a rising sound like the rushing of wind or water the swarming of a billion small vermin coming for them. She looked at the rat corpse on the laboratory floor, and the memory of her dream slammed through her. Toshiko swallowed back bile, then crossed to the lab's far wall with box and sword in her hands. Noguchi stared at her. What are you doing? Whatever's up there is overwhelming the guards. My orders are clear. If the safe house is attacked, 
defend it. If it cannot be defended, then escape with your work. Sheathing her sword, she grabbed the codex with the translucent pages and strange wheels and shoved it into Noguchi's arms. Foolish girl, there's no such, huh? Toshiko felt a flash of unprofessional satisfaction from the faltering of Noguchi's voice. But she didn't stop to savor it, dragging him toward the panel she had opened into the house's escape tunnel. So this is your response, came a voice from behind them, vibrating around the lab. Running through the wainscoting like rats. Are you sure it's such an escape? I know a thing or two about catching rats, you know. Toshiko looked around, saw no one. To be sure, she slid a little blue pebble from her sleeve and flicked it expertly into the far doorway, closing her eyes to the flash. In answer, the voice just laughed. Come to me, little magician. Serve your tyrant as you ought. Let the rat girl go. She can match herself against the real rat as she likes the tunnels so much. Face working in terror, Noguchi swung the heavy book at Toshiko's head. She caught the blow on her free arm, punched him in the throat, and then kicked him in the crotch in the chest. The second kick a powerful heel drive that shot the little man back into the lab. The codex landed open on the floor, and that horrifying voice roared with laughter again. No wonder you could repair my device so effectively. I should have known. You had my notes. How strange to see my old writing again. A tide of lights came pouring down the corridor at floor level. Rat's eyes, catching the lamplight from the lab. They would be through the door in moments. In an eye blink, Toshiko had a Kusari Fundo chain whirring in her hand, lashing out left and right as she pirouetted. Every time it struck, a lamp shattered. Oil and kerosene splattered and puddled on the floor. No time for final words, nor point to any. Toshiko flicked another flash bomb back over her shoulder as she vanished into the tunnel, and there was a roar as Noguchi's library and lab went up in flames. In a street-front room three buildings up and across the road from the safe house, a flagstone trembled, then flipped over as a grunt of effort came from underneath it. A moment later, Toshiko wriggled up through the gap, limber as an eel, and pushed the stone back into place. The tunnel could have taken her a lot further, but she had remembered that voice's words about rats, and her dream. Toshiko was perfectly at home in darkness and it had been simple work to find the nearest ladder up out of the tunnels. Now all she had to do was... And then the music had her again. It was a slow, elegant tune, hanging in the street like fog, somewhere between the soothing notes of a Nipponese flute and the fussy, over-elaborate melodies the Gaijin favoured. As soon as it slipped into her ears, Toshiko felt herself eroding, she half stood, peering out the window. Smoke seeped out of the safe house. The fire had stayed in the lab, apparently. The doorway and steps were strewn with corpses. Corpses Toshiko recognized. There were men and women she'd been giving orders to and just hours ago. All of them had strange crystalline growths bursting out of their skins, 
forming claws, spurs, and tusks. The crystals glowed the same purple and blue that their eyes had done, and with a start, Toshiko realized she was seeing the street by the light those crystals gave off. Silhouetted in that light, a man stood with his back to her, his long coat and broad-brimmed hat making him an angular shape like a piece of calligraphy. A horde of rats formed a glossy carpet around him, and spaced through it like islands with children. From little wide-eyed urchins to lanky teenagers, swaying silently to the music. Her vision seemed to undulate. Her feet moved, carried her forward. Something rocked her head to one side. The explosion of sparks in her eyes came next, leaving only then the pain in her temple as she dropped to her knees and pitched forward. Toshiko didn't think she'd been completely unconscious. She had been dimly aware of small but determined hands dragging her through the house by the ankles. It took her longer than she liked for the dizziness to go away, but finally she sat up on grimy floorboards, looking at the circle of solemn little faces studying her over a candle flame. Well, I'll be damned. The phrase sounded curiously wrong in a child's piping voice. She looked over at a face she recognised, the boy from the house days ago. The little girl knelt alongside, clutching her dirty stuffed bear. We had to hit you, he said. We could see the flute happening to you. Had to stop you. Toshiko blinked, processing that. Looking around the circle again, she noticed a couple of the children still had twists of rag stuffed in one or both ears. He's in your house now, the boy said. He went in after we hit you. We've seen him before. Were you working for him or watching for him? Don't work for him, Toshiko managed. It took her a moment to form the answer in English and remember how to pronounce it, but the boy seemed satisfied. He's been around for ages. Don't know how long. He and his rats, watching your house, all the time. Toshiko thought back to the conversation in the lab. The man with the flute had been somehow keeping the other horrors of the quarantine zone away from the house. What could do that with such apparent casualness? Who is he? she asked, and the boy spat. He's a monster, cried the little girl, glaring and sniffling over her bear's head. He took away our friends. He takes everything. The children clutched each other. Toshiko looked around at them all and wondered what to say. The boy helped her out. What's this? he asked, and held up the little silver box. I've seen you kingdom folk. This doesn't look like anything of yours. It's not, she told him. It belongs to the man who took your friends. I don't know what it is, but it's very important to him. And if you give it back to me, I am going to use it to hurt him. Toshiko pushed her mask back to let them see her smile. And after a moment, the boy and the girl smiled back at her. Toshiko Kita came walking back down the centre of the street, bold and proud, carrying the little silver box respectfully in both hands. 
It reflected the last of the dimming light from the crystal tumours that had erupted from Jacob Lynch's guards. "'Which is it?' asked the girl who sat cross-legged on the chest of the scrawny guard Toshiko had met on her first day. "'Fear or fascination? "'Did you bring it back because of my music, "'or because you finally realised what it means to make me angry?' "'I don't talk to puppets,' Toshiko said. "'I hand this over to your tyrant, or not at all.' "'She spoke in Nipponese, but the child still nodded unconcerned. "'Come upstairs. Step into my parlour.' "'The child laughed.' and the laugh was taken up in the rhythm of the grave beetles that rustled and stirred in the hallway. They parted for Toshiko as she walked to the stairs. "'You're a strong one, aren't you?' said a voice made out of the squeal of rats as she passed up through the next floor. "'Strong and silent and defiant. Not all the qualities I associate with your folk, all your bowing and scraping and formality.' I have worked upon my strength, said Toshiko politely, and you are kind to compliment it. She climbed the next set of stairs. Strength of body to prop up your weakness of mind, I think, said the scuttle of centipedes and the buzz of flies. But a strong body is a delusion. A healthy body is an incomplete work. A blank slate waiting to be written on in the calligraphy of contagion. What is your calligraphy like, I wonder? I humbly suggest that it suffices, Toshiko said. And then there were no more stairs. She was in the top level, in Noguchi's apartments. And now the tyrant's private room. Noguchi stood, rocking back and forth in the corner, his back to the room. His hands hung by his sides, and Toshiko could hear him giving a ceaseless keening moan. From him, her eyes passed over the codex perched on a lectern of piled-up insects, and finally arrived at the corpse gaunt and grinning face of Hamlin the Plagued. One eye was a roomy white ball the other a glittering black until the beetle that had been sitting in the empty socket tumbled out. So a little mortal girl spoiled my plans, and a little mortal girl is repairing them. So good of you. He held his hand out. It would have troubled me to have to have your friend put together a new device from first principles. The creature glanced at its codex. Even though he has my work to refer to. Toshiko didn't answer. She was looking between the three of them. The tyrant, the traitor, the book. I don't blame you for being mute before me, girl. But trust me, you do not want one of my lessons in obedience. Bring the device to me. Then we shall discuss what is to become of you. Toshiko held the box out. She had planned to have her hand shake in mock fear. But here, now, in his presence, she didn't need to play act. Toshiko realized if she took a moment longer to think, she would lose her nerve. She threw the box with as much force as she could muster into the back of Noguchi's head. 
It was heavy enough to send him to his knees with a groan, and Toshiko sprang forward, sword leaping into her hand. Oh, now this is infantile, the tyrant boomed, unfolding himself from the bed and grabbing up his staff and flute. Must you humiliate yourself by acting like a child? Children see more than you think, Toshiko said. Her sword flashed, and the hand that held Hamlin's staff fell to the floor. Maggots and centipedes crawled out of the stump. They told me. She opened Hamlin's belly with a return stroke. That you find fighting beneath you. She took off the hand that held the flute. Because you can't die. You crawl back together and stand up to play your music. She spun and put everything into a flat cut that took off the piper's head. It sneered up at her from the floor. And yet this is still the best strategy you can think of, it asked, as a boil of flies and worms erupted from the body's wounds and began knitting themselves into new flesh. The maggots I'll farm in your corpse will be worth more to the world than you. And they told me, Toshiko said, that putting yourself back together takes just long enough for... And she finished the sentence by ramming a fistful of flash bombs down into the tyrant's open neck hole. The head bellowed in anger, spewing beetles and flies out of its mouth like half-chewed food. Toshiko felt the vermin clogging his body try to grip and bite at her hand, a foul, writhing envelopment. She yanked her hand out, trading a confetti shower of plague pests, and was diving for the codex when the bombs went off. They were designed for flash, smoke and noise, not destruction. But there were enough of them to do the job. The tottering body was peeled open from the waist up, collapsing in a puddle of shattered chitin and splattered ichor. From the stairs came the rattle of innumerable claws. The rats. Punishment. Toshiko gave the snarling head a vindictive kick and snatched up the codex, leaping up and away from the carpet of vermin that tried to swarm up her calves, landing close to the slumped and groaning Noguchi. You deserve worse than this, she told the back of his head. Be thankful. A thrust of her sword and his groans turned to gurgles, and then she turned her back on him. Toshiko had memorized every escape route from the house. She knew exactly which window shutters would give way to a good kick, and which neighboring rooftop she could land on safely in the dark. As the tide of squealing rats and shouting children reached the apartment, she was gone across the rooftops with the codex under her arm. The apartment room boiled with life. Flies, sluggish in the night's chill, turned the walls and ceiling into a mass of movement. Rats rioted across the floor, screeching and hissing as their tyrant's temper infected them. In the corner, Noguchi twisted under a heap of crawling filth. The tyrant wasn't ready to let the little traitor die yet. Hamlin sat cross-legged on the bed. He did not bother to roar or curse or swear revenge. His anger was corpse-cold now, not fever-hot. He stared down at the device open on his lap. It was not the device. The spindles and gears were gone. The woman had wrenched them out, and packed the box with dead rats and a cobblestone to make up the weight. Hamlin's grip tightened on his flute. Tightened further, 
His fingers squelched, and the worn wood of the flute splintered in his hand. He looked down at it. The damage reversed itself, the flute seamlessly knitting back together. He raised it to his lips. He played a note, but it faltered and died. He tried again, but the sound was staccato and broken, and the tune wouldn't take. He took another breath, and realized he was laughing. He rocked back on the bed, threw back his head and gave into it. The laughter boomed out of him, shook his lean frame, catapulted grubs and spiders out of his mouth and through the air. The tyrant's game had resumed, and only now he realized how much he had missed it. Such twists, such slipperiness. To think that he had been anxious to have done with it and move on. Hamlin's laughter echoed into the night. This game promised to be good. set for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.